0: Hey everyone, welcome to episode 24 of The Vast Podcast, where we are all about helping curious people think more deeply about the gospel and how it informs their whole lives. My name is Michael, and today Jake and I sit down for a fascinating and frankly challenging conversation with Beckett Cook. After living the majority of his life as a gay man, Beckett met a stranger at a coffee shop in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, who invited him to his church in Hollywood called Reality L.A. Beckett reluctantly agreed to attend the service. After hearing the sermon that Sunday, Beckett was utterly transformed by the gospel and gave his life to Christ. He also knew on that day when God revealed himself to him that homosexuality was a sin and that he could no longer live that life. Beckett was more than happy to count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Beckett now spends most of his time in ministry, speaking at churches, universities, and conferences, helping believers and non-believers understand this issue biblically, theologically, culturally, and personally. Balancing grace and truth when teaching on this subject is of primary importance to Beckett. His goal is to challenge the current cultural narrative about sexuality in general, And homosexuality in particular by demonstrating through his personal testimony and biblical truths that yes, homosexuality is still a sin and that following Christ is infinitely more satisfying and joyous. Beckett graduated from the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University in 2017 with a Master of Arts in Theology and his book, A Change of Affection, A Gay Man's Incredible Story of Redemption, with a foreword by Francis Chan, published by Thomas Nelson, released in 2019. Beckett is also the host of The Beckett Cook Show on YouTube. Before we jump into this conversation, I want to remind you to make sure and subscribe and leave a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast today. Follow us on Instagram at vast.faith. And sign up for our email newsletter at www.vast.faith. As always, make sure and share the episode around with folks who you think might dig the podcast. Okay, let's jump into this conversation that Jake and I had with Beckett Cook.
1: All right. Do you want to cue us up?
0: We are here with Beckett Cook. Beckett, thanks for being on the podcast. We're like talking digitally, but literally about 10 miles away from each other
2: this is kind of i think the first time i've been on a show that's been within los angeles within we're both
0: we're all three in los angeles so that's cool we should have planned this better we should have had you come over here to
1: our fancy studio yeah i know
0: yeah as you can tell it's really fancy so we've got all the great which
1: also happens to be the uh uh what do you call it parents lounge the parents lounge The like like church mother's room
0: <laughs> in our church is our podcast studio oh nice so you know
1: <laughs> this is our headquarters.
0: we crushing it. No, There's <laughs> literally a diaper changing table right there. So you know, you guys are on your way. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, definitely. We are definitely. Um, so I guess let's start off. How did how did we hear first hear about um, Beckett? And yep. like talk us through that.
1: I first heard about Beckett uh, through uh, an article online where you were sharing your story of coming to Christ, um, and you were uh, a practicing homosexual. And so obviously that piqued my interest, um, especially as a young pastor dealing with, uh, all kinds of questions around sexuality, um, which seems like is quite a popular topic now for really any possible have to, yeah, to walk through, not even just in, I think, major cities like LA, but, uh, in all kinds of places. So, uh, I became aware of your story through that. And then, uh, I think probably just through God's providence recently, that, popped back into my head. I was like, oh, we should reach out to this guy and have him come on our podcast and share a story. And, um, so yeah, we're honored to have you on here, man. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm glad you guys reached out. It's Absolutely. good to be here. I definitely, uh, I connect on, uh, <laughs> on, on the vast, vast podcast On the vast it's podcast. It's so vast. Yes. I love it. it it's yeah. very vast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's nowhere we won't go. Right. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, <laughs> if you have me on, <laughs> if you're having me on your show, there are definitely nowhere you won't go. <laughs> So I connected kind of personally to your story because of uh, the geography. Um, You've got invited to church at what was like my favorite coffee shop at the time. So anyway, uh, Becca, would you uh, kick us off just by sharing uh, some of your story, your background, how you came to Christ?
2: Yeah. So I grew up in Dallas, Texas. I was the youngest of eight kids. I knew at a very young age that I was attracted to the same sex and of course back in those days back in ancient ancient Rome it was very much taboo to be gay so in da- especially in Dallas and <clears throat> i grew up in a roman catholic family so i kind of led this double life sort of like internally i knew i was attracted to the same sex but at school at elementary school and high school i you know i went steady with girls and i um uh So I, and I was, you know, I was very popular, but, but I had this like dark, deep, dark secret. I couldn't tell anyone. And so it was this weird sort of almost schizophrenia of like, okay, I have to live this one life this way and another life completely quietly and privately and not tell anyone because I'll be completely ostracized. And so in high school, though, at Jesuit in Dallas, I ended up becoming best friends with someone who was dealing with the same thing. So we became best friends, came out to each other at the Stark Club in Dallas in and, and, um, wow. 1985, I think. What's the start? Club? Uh, I was like 14 years old. I mean, it was crazy, like we were, so we came out to each other and we were going to gay bars. We were going to, you know, Cedar, on Cedar Springs, in Cedar mm-hmm. Springs, mm-hmm. and I was very, very young. He was younger, he was a year younger, and I don't even know how we got into these clubs. <laughs> We looked like we were I was say you Wait, you were 14 and 13? <laughs> no. Yeah, we were like, thir- I was 14, 15 and 14, really. Wow. And, you know, like we went to the Stark Club and they immediately put us on the guest list. Like we because I don't know, it was just the craziest thing. And so we. Is, what is the Stark Club? Is that like a famous gay bar? And Stark Club Browns is not or? a gay bar. It's It was designed by Philippe Stark, the French designer, um, famous mm. very very famous french designer that you should know about if you don't know i don't i, don't. Know what you're I, I only read the bible oh. I, I i'm sorry I... <laughs> and so the stark was owned kind of like by grace jones and stevie Nicks and like a couple a few other people but they were investors in it anyway i remember walking into the Stark club with my best friend like the first time and there were straight people gay people they were like Drag, what we called back then, drag queens, and we walked in and we were like, "Whoa!" And I was like, "Wow, these are my people. These, I feel at home now. Finally, like, I finally found my people, because I never felt quite at home uh, with my friends in in high school because they didn't really know who I, you know, who I was or what I was dealing with. So I kind of, mm-hmm. even though I was good friends with a lot of people in high school. I always felt slightly alienated because I didn't. They didn't really know me, and so the Start Club was kind of like, okay, these people get who I am. These are like the misfits of society, and they're also like insane, like and amazing people, and they're all artists, and and so that was a huge turning point for me because being able to have a best friend I could confide in and go explore gay culture with. And I, you know, I was very precocious. Uh, and because, again, I was the youngest of eight kids, my parents were kind of uh, missing in action.
0: <laughs>
2: they just, like, couldn't <laughs> right. be bothered. I was making straight A's at Jesuit. And so they didn't care. They didn't even think about, like, where I was yeah. at five in the morning. They didn't notice, really. And so mm-hmm. so I had uh, all this kind of uh, leeway or this room to kind of maneuver and do whatever I wanted. And... So I, so yeah, we, and we went to gay bars and, um, I, ex, I experienced, you know, sexual activity with guys in high school. And, um, you know, I, I so I started at a very young age and then, and then I went off to college. The same thing happened. I became best friends with someone in college who was dealing with the same thing and then again, we like explored gay life together. We, we, confide, you go to we confided in each other and we were still in the closet. Like I, I never thought being gay was kind of like this lifelong thing. I didn't think it was like a permanent thing. I just thought, oh, well, this is what I'm into now. And like, eventually kind of like in the back of my mind, I was like, eventually I'll, you know, I'll figure, I'll figure this out and get married to a woman and have a family. Like, this is just like a kind hmm. of a phase, but but not really. I'm not sure. So, so I was in the closet and um, it wasn't until after college, I, I went to, to, I moved to Japan, to Tokyo with my best friend. And because we, we, we both were kind of like, what do we, we didn't know what we wanted to do with our lives. I was applied, applied to law school and got in, I applied to dental school in Dallas and got in Baylor dental school. I got in. It's weird. I had all these kind of grad school options, but I was like, I don't know if I want to do any of this stuff. Like, so we moved to Tokyo to figure things out. And as if that's going to help. But as um, you do, as you do, right? As you do, you know. And And we lived in Japan for a year. And well, I lived there for a year. My friend ended up staying for five years, which is crazy. But we, again, in Japan, in Tokyo, like being gay was super taboo. So, like, the gay bars were super underground. Um, but I, it was weird, I felt this sort of freedom that I had never felt before because I it was so far away from home that I felt like kind of liberated because no one really, you know, no one I knew was there really in Japan. So, um, and then while we were living in Japan in Shibuya, near Shibuya in the middle of Tokyo, his friend from Texas came to visit us, and that he was on the Christo exhibit. The artist, if you know, I don't know if you know Christo, but he's a French artist, and he and his wife used to like drape. They used to put fabric over like the Reichstag, and like they would put fabric over giant buildings and stuff. Like that was <laughs> okay. That was their, you art. know, that kind of art, like conceptual. Okay. Um. Yeah. Christo, he he recently died. Anyway. So this guy we'll call him Adam. Adam came to visit us in Tokyo for cuz he was on the Christo exhibition. He was part of like helping put up these giant umbrellas. They they he did these umbrellas and all across California and Japan, these yellow umbrellas and blue umbrellas. And so uh, Adam oh, wow. was part of that whole project and so he came and stayed with us for like 5 days. And by the time he left, we had fallen in love. And it was the Mm -hmm. first time I had fallen in love with a guy. And it was like, oh my gosh, like, this is, this is crazy. This is who I am. Like, this is, and that's when homosexuality as my identity became completely cemented. And I, uh, so Adam and I ended up dating. Well, I moved back to to Texas, to Dallas after Tokyo. Uh, we Adam and I dated for t- almost two years, kind of long distance. He was in Austin, I was in Dallas, and it was so it was very stressful. But um, and then that fell apart. And then I moved to Los Angeles. And so in 1993, okay. I moved to LA. And uh, and
0: at this time, at, at this point in time, had you come out to your family yet? Like, did they yeah. know that this was?
2: yeah in tokyo it all happened in tokyo because my my sister had written me a letter asking me if i was gay because she had had these she suspected that i was and i wrote her this really long letter back and you know an epistle to my sister and um and uh, i said at the end of the letter i said please don't tell mom and dad because i'll you know i'll tell them when i get home but of course she, she immediately told my entire family <laughs> which I kind of appreciated because she did all the heavy lifting for me. So by the time I got back from Tokyo, my my whole family knew, my parents knew. And my parents were super lovely about it. They were so gracious. They my parents were born again Christians and my all my siblings were. Even it's a long story I can't get into the whole Catholic thing, but there was a whole reformation in my family. Uh, but basically everyone was born again, all my, all my siblings, which is crazy. My seven siblings wow. and my parents who are in heaven right now are all very committed Christians. It's bizarre. Wow. It's like all 10 of us. And so hmm. God had a huge amount That's of grace amazing. my family, but, um, my parents reaction, my dad, my mother cried and I was like, mom, it's okay. Don't worry. This is just who I am. It's not a big deal. And then she was fine. And then my dad, you know, he came up to me and asked me, you know, did I do anything wrong as a father? Are you uh, angry at me about X, Y, and Z? And I was like, dad, it's not your fault. This is just, this is just who I am, blah, blah, blah. So, but they were super sweet about it, super loving, super, uh, I mean, obviously they, they believed it was wrong. And they believed it was sinful for sure. And all of my siblings did my siblings were a little more ju- like more harsh on me than my parents. My parents were just like, we love you. And like, you know, they, they, they knew they couldn't really do anything about it, you know, cause I was like a free agent <laughs> and that was moving to LA. <laughs> so they were just really sweet. And I moved to LA. And when I got here, I got into this group of friends that were really fun and, um, it was just an amazing group of friends and they all run this town now they run hollywood because all my friends in la were it was this whole group of people from brown university and from princeton and they and we it was like they were all writers producers actors directors and they all became wildly successful like every single person mm-hmm. in my group became i i could I, I could say their names but i'm not going to but they became hugely successful in their fields And so we, I was in this kind of really fun, crazy group and, and it was like, you know, guys, girls, some were gay, some weren't like, it was a mix. I, it was, I was never in like a gay ghetto. Like that wasn't my style. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't like that whole, that
1: Mm -hmm.
0: vibe. And, um. Yeah. And is this, uh, is this like mid nineties, late nineties? When is this early two thousands? Okay. Um. And it was just crazy, like, you know,
2: my friends were, my friend was like, oh, I'm writing a screenplay. And then suddenly it was like, oh, like, Warner Brothers just bought my screenplay. And then my friend's like, oh, I'm going to write a movie. And, you know, it's called We Were at Swingers, which is right down the street from me. he's like, yeah, I think we're, I'm going to call the movie Swingers. And we were like, oh, what? And then it, it became like the wow. giant, you know, Doug yeah. directed. Yeah. yeah. So, it like, yeah, it's just like that stuff was happening all the time. And so... I was always invited to movie premieres and to the Oscars, to the Emmys, the Golden Globes, and all the parties and the Hollywood party, like the Vanity Fair parties, the the Governor's Ball after the Oscars. Somehow, I was just always included in these in these events and parties. And <clears throat> um, because I, at the time in the nineties, I was a I was a, a struggling writer slash actor, so I was I was doing a ton of commercials. <laughs> And um, I was you know I was doing a lot of commercials, but then not really doing well in the other side, like TV or movies. I did like a you know, a couple of indie films, uh, one at Sundance. But then I, then I ended up becoming a uh, set designer, a production designer for the for the fat in the fashion world. So I did shoots for like mm-hmm. Vanity Fair and and Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. And, um, and then all these big, you know, ad campaigns for Gap and Old Navy and Yves Saint Laurent and all these fashion brands. And so, but anyway, meanwhile, I was going to all these parties, having all this fun, like hanging out with, you know, going to Prince's house where he performed for three hours in his backyard, going to Ariana Huffington's house all the time, like for cocktails and mm-hmm. on the West side in Brentwood and going, you know, having dinner with Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep having going just like constantly going to these fun
0: living the dream la i
1: think i was at a few of those actually you and i might have crossed yeah 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 that's what my early
0: years in la were like also yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) you know like going
2: to all these max muchnick's house for a party but he created will and grace and like just all this Mm -hmm. stuff like was just a a day a nightly thing for me so i was loving it like i loved my life i thought it was fun and it was also very direct. I was going through, I cycled through five serious boyfriends. I lived with them. And then after, you know, after doing that for a, long, a while, I guess from like 93 to 2009, how many years is
1: that? Quick. Wow. That's a lot of years. 10 uh,
0: 10 what's nine minus three
1: 17 15. 15. 15 15 i don't know okay something, something like that <laughs> something like that
0: uh yeah. 17, we need, a lot, we need a lot john linux 16 on 16 to, years to 16 back. years 16 years yeah, yeah. gosh
2: wow, wow. so yeah fantastic. after kind of like <laughs> none of us yeah. chasing shiny <laughs> objects for 16 years you get a little bored about that and so i was at paris fashion week in march of 2009 i used to go to fashion weeks in new york and paris I had friends in the, I just, I was, again, one of those things, I was just always invited. I literally had just like an Mm -hmm. open invitation every season to go if I wanted to. And Mm -hmm. I, some, a lot of times I didn't go, but I did go a lot. And I was at Paris Fashion Week in March of 2009. I I went to a bunch of the runway shows. Most of the shows have after parties. Some are more extravagant than others. I was at, I think it was Stella McCartney's after party. She's a designer, Paul McCartney's daughter. And I was at, at her party at this club called Regine in Paris. And I was sitting with Rachel Zoe and Roger, her husband. Rachel Zoe was like this fashion girl that she used to have her own Bravo show. But I was sitting with them and I was drinking champagne and I was looking out over the crowd and like everyone was there from the fashion world. Kanye was there, like all the, everyone in the, and I, everyone was dancing and having this kind of the time of their life. And it was just like the chic, you know, the chic people. And, um, and I just, I just felt this overwhelming sense of emptiness. Like, mm-hmm. like it, it, it was very unexpected and it was very strong. It was very powerful. I just felt, Like, this cannot be my life. I've done this since high... I mean, I've been doing this since I was 14. I've been going... I've been getting on guest lists of, like, fabulous clubs, like the Star Club, all blah, blah, blah. Since I was 14, even in Dallas when I was in high school, I was, like, always invited to these crazy... I was invited to Saint-Tropez, to, like, friends' houses, all the time, like, crazy stuff. So I was, like... At this point, I was, like... I. Can't oh and I you know Rick Owens I don't know if you know who Rick Owens is the fashion designer Mm -mm. but like you know he lives uh, in Paris now he's an American but he's married to Michelle Lamy and they live he's the reason we all wore those those long hem
1: T-shirts ah got yeah okay so Rick
2: Owens so I went (laughs) like for example Rick Owens yeah I was in Paris I think this may have been the same wait was this it may have been the same time I'm not sure no no no, it was like no that was before but I was. I was invited to Rick Owens' house for Bastille Day, like with Michelle and me. She used to own Cafe Le Deux and Cafe des Artistes mm-hmm. in L.A. And um, like I went to their house, like they're it's like in the center of Paris. They have like a five-story beautiful chateau, and it's just like that was just like my life. But so at Paris Fashion Week in 2009, I just felt like I can't do this anymore. Um. You know, I've done everything, I've met everyone, I've traveled the world, I've I've done it I like it was kind of like Peggy Lee. Is that all there is? Like, is that all there is to mm-hmm. life? And I always wanted to know the meaning of life. It wasn't like I was oblivious to that, but I just knew that God could never was never an option for me because I was gay. So I was like, there's no that's mm-hmm. okay, that's off the table. So I would always look for meaning and purpose in the theater, I would go to these really serious plays in New York and London all the time. It's uh, so like by Tom Stoppard and Harold Pinter and Eugene O'Neill and Her- uh, Tony Kushner, really. And uh, David Mamet, who's a terrible playwright, but um, mm. <laughs> so I, you know, I thought like, Oh, these guys will have, they're so smart. Like they'll definitely, I'll figure out the meaning of life through these plays, especially Tom Stoppard. And I would always go to these plays with all this kind of hope. And then I would leave feeling completely empty again, because I would just feel like it came so close to the truth. Like an Ibsen play, like a doll's house. It would say it would come so close to the truth, but then fall apart. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I read, you know, so many novels and, you know, Anna Karenina and all these serious, like Russian novels I was obsessed with. And, um, and I thought, okay, this will help me figure out what life's all about. And it sort of did. Tolstoy, I think Tolstoy was a Christian, and there's a character in Anna Karenina named Levin who has a conversion to Christianity, and it's an amazing, amazing like 50 page passage in that book. But, um, and so anyway, I was in, so I had this meltdown in Paris. Went back to my hope I had rented an apartment there, so I went back to my apartment in the Marais, and I just was up all night about, in a panic about my future. I'm like, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? Like, I can't go on like this. I mean, Hmm. I, like, am I just going to move to Palm Springs and be put out to pasture? Like, uh, you know, every other older gay man, you know, (laughs) because at that time that was like the rhythm, you know, it's like, once you kind of age out of, 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 you know, your gay life, like you move to Palm Springs and that's kind of like where you can (laughs) talk (laughs) <laughs> and uh, you just go to the hunter for the rest of your life. And so um, <laughs> then uh, I got back to L.A. From, from Paris, and I got really busy with work again, working on photo shoots. And so I kind of forgot about that night, but it was still on my mind. and And then six months later, as God would have it, I was at Intelligentsia in Silver Lake, which is a mm-hmm. coffee shop. Mm-hmm. On Sunset. That my friend, my best friend and I used to, that was our weekend kind of rhythm. We would go to Ache, which is a, a restaurant in Venice uh, on Abbott Kinney. It's no longer there. We used to go to Ache for brunch, go shopping at Barney's or Fred Siegel in West Hollywood, which is gay church. Shopping and brunch is gay church. And then um, <laughs> we would go to Intelligentsia every weekend Mm -hmm. and we would just hang out and just kind of like talk to people or whatever. But that particular weekend we were chatting and then suddenly we see, we look over and we see this table next to us with young people and there's, they have Bibles, like physical Bibles on the table. Mm -hmm. And we're just like, my friend and her, we had never ever seen a Bible in LA in public ever. Like this was like shock. Uh, I had never met a Christian in LA. Like,
0: <laughs>
2: and by the way, with my friend group in LA, we never once talked about God. We all, we just knew that God, that it was all a myth and we didn't even have to say it. We were, we just were like, oh, God is for those people. Like we don't talk about that. Um,
1: for Just to clarify for 16 years, you, the the subject of God never, came never up. came up. No wow. one, no one ever said, "Do
2: you believe it? Is there an afterlife? Do you believe?" It? No. It was just we just it was assumed that it was all a fairy tale, and we didn't even wow. have to say it. It was weird. It was like this weird thing, underwritten code, and um. So you can imagine. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, so let's see. Then. So we see these people with Bibles and my friend kind of loved to sort of engage in controversial conversations. So he he was like, he, he's like, ask them what they're, ask them what's going on. And I, so I was like, no, I don't want to talk to them. And so anyway, we ended up, I ended up turning to them. It's like an evangel it's a Christian's fantasy, fantasy come true. It's like an atheist turning to someone <laughs> saying, Hey, what's the gospel? What do you guys believe? <laughs> and so that's actually what I did. I turned to them and I said, "What are you guys Christians? What's the deal? And they're like, yeah, we, we're evangelical Christians. We go to this church in Hollywood called Reality LA on Sunset. Did they, they use that term? They called themselves evangelical? Yeah. I think so. so I, I, mm-hmm. I came up yeah. at, at a certain point, yeah. Right. I, I mean, I think they may have said, our, we go to an evangelical church. Evangelical church, um, gotcha. So I knew, so then... We actually ended up in this conversation for a long time. And I, and I asked, I finally got to the $64,000 question. And I said, you know, well, what does your church believe about homosexuality? And they said, well, we believe it's a sin. And I, and I, I, the thing, the the funny thing is, is like, I would have, you know, five years before that or two years before that, I would have just been like, okay, you guys are insane and you need help. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm leaving now. But because of that night in Paris six months before, I was open to hearing that. And I wasn't, I wasn't shocked that they said that. I, I kind of assumed that's, that was the case. And I had this moment of what if there is a God, there's a slim chance. There's a God, slim chance. And what if homosexual (laughs) behavior is a sin? And what if I've built my entire life on this false foundation and I don't know it? And so... I kind of had this moment of like, okay. And I just accepted what they said. I didn't, I didn't, you know, protest. Uh, and so I just listened. And then they, they invited me to their church the following Sunday. And I said, well, I don't know, honestly, if I'm, I, if I'm going to go, like, can you just give me the address and I'll, I'll think about it. So they gave me the address. I had a week to think it through and I kind of was the whole week. I was like, Shh, should I do this? It's weird if I go and people, my friends find out like I'm it's, I'm going to be like, they're going to think I'm crazy and it's going to be humiliating. Even though my best friend knew I was maybe going to go, no one else really knew. So it would have been Mm -hmm. very weird for people to find out that I was going to an evangelical church. Uh, Because, uh, you know, we saw the evangelicals as the enemy, you know, that's what Mm -hmm. uh, just like, that's kind of was our, sort of attitude towards evangelical Christians in general. And so for me to go into enemy territory was really strange. And so (laughs) the following Sunday, I woke up and I, I was like, I guess I'm going to do this. And I go to reality LA on sunset. I it's in a high school auditorium Mm -hmm. and I walk in and there's it just was crazy. I was like, I, it was my first time at an evangelical church. I was like, I don't even know what to, I don't even know what this is going to be. Like what, I don't know, know what it's going to be like. And I walk in and there's worship music. The band is playing and I'm like, oh, Christian music. I forgot about that. That's so weird. It's like, <laughs> But then I was like, no, it's not bad. Actually, it's nice. And mm-hmm. And then I found my seat. I sat by myself in the front, near the front. The pastor Tim Chaddock comes out and he starts preaching on Romans chapter seven. And wow, he was he spent two years in the book of Romans. He he's an expository <laughs> preacher, and so um he was on Romans chapter seven that day. And uh, he was just preaching for an hour, and while he was preaching, everything all this stuff started to to happen. I every word he was saying was resonating as truth in my mind, in my heart, and then I didn't know why and i was like what i was literally on the edge of wow. my seat riveted to the sermon and i was it was the first time in my life i had actually heard and understood the gospel i was like wait this is the gospel like it turned everything i thought religion was on its head and i was like this is this is good news like this is crazy good news
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: and then after the sermon i went over to the side of the auditorium this guy prayed for me and it was, he was very loving and sweet. And, and it, um, I was like, how does this random straight dude like care about me so much? Mm-hmm. And, and then I walked back to my seat and that's when it all went down. Um, it's so I, <laughs> so everyone's standing up and singing and worshiping. I sit down cause I'm just too freaked out by the sermon, by the prayer, like everything's mm-hmm. freaking, I'm just like in a state, I'm in this state. So, Uh, as soon as I sit down and there's 25 more minutes of of worship time so Mm -hmm. I sit down and the Holy Spirit just like floods me like God and God just like it was like Paul when he says I knew I once knew I knew a man once who was caught up in the third heaven it felt like I was caught Mm -hmm. up into heaven for like three seconds Mm. it was so crazy it was like a near death experience and Um, so then I, God in that moment was like, I'm God. Jesus is my son. Heaven is real. Hell is real. The Bible is true. Welcome to my kingdom. And I just immediately burst into tears. Hmm. Like I've never, ever cried in my life since I was an infant, but I was born again. So I, I, that was, I was a new infant and I was crying. So, so I was doubled over in crying so hard that people around me were starting to get worried about me they were going to call like a medic <laughs> i found out later wow and um and so the holy ghost was on you the <laughs> holy ghost was in the house so the, yeah. uh yeah michael and i grew up pentecostal oh okay yeah so yeah i mean it was it was my the church is reformed so it wasn't like it wasn't really like that but it was yeah so Then I, yeah, I was just crying for the next 25 minutes, just crying and crying. And I was, it was like Isaiah when he's in the temple and he sees the holiness of God and he comes undone. Like, that's what happened to me. And it was Mm -hmm. not to keep like, it was a road to, it was like a road to Damascus moment. It was like so powerful, so intense. And, uh, and then I, I. after the service, I got, I collected myself, got in my car, drove home. I don't even know how I could see. I couldn't really see because like, my eyes are just like full wow. of tears. But I got home, got into bed to take a nap, and it happened again a second time, like twice in one day. God was like, let me show you some more of my glory. And I oh just immediately burst into tears again. Jumped out of my bed and I was like in the middle of my bedroom. I was like, God, you have my whole life. I'm yours. I'm done. And I knew in that moment, I knew that homosexual behavior was wrong. I knew it was sinful. I knew it was no longer part of my life. I knew that dating guys was no longer part of my future, but I didn't care because I just met Jesus. And I was like, I'm going with that guy for good riddance to those guys. Like this guy is amazing (laughs) and I'm sticking with him. And I've been, you know, single, and I, I would say celibate, but Rosario Butterfield corrected me on that. I've been single and chaste for for the last twelve years, and so, um, and I'm I'm happy to, I'm happy to, it it, it doesn't, I never feel cheated out of anything or like. I don't ever feel like this is unfair that I have to be single. And this is like, or I never ever have felt that once, not a set for a second because I have number one, I'm an heir to God, a co-heir with Christ. I have eternal life. Mm I do the kingdom of God. I, you know, those are kind of that kind of offsets any sort of suffering uh, or any, whatever, not suffering, but whatever it is. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's just been an amazing 12 years. And I, and I, have no desire to go back to Egypt. No desire whatsoever. Like I just don't I don't want I don't want that life. I don't want to be a part of it. It's not something I miss at all. And um yeah
1: that's kind of it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the it's, end I mean that would have been that's an incredible story. Yeah. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. And it's just I'm so moved by mm-hmm. how God God literally saved you. Like he showed up twice in one day and just pulled you out of darkness into light. That would have been quite, I imagine like that, that didn't just affect like your romantic life that had to have had effects on, uh, the other aspects of your life too. I mean, career. Oh yeah. Did that talk to us about that? Cause there's had to be a cost there.
2: Well, there was, well, there wasn't for a long time, but then there was, so in terms of career, you know, I, of course, could, I was like, you know, the treasure in the fields. Um, what's that? I can't think of the verse, but I, I immediately just on every photo shoot I worked on with actresses and, and pop stars and, you know, Katy Perry and all these, and I was in, you know, Paris Hilton's kitchen evangelizing everyone in, on the shoot. You know, I was like, just like, Oh my gosh, you guys, Jesus is real. It's crazy. You've got to believe me. <laughs> like, I just, I, I I didn't care. I was completely fearless because of the Lord. It wasn't wow. me. It was like, God, because of that, how powerful God, and That because of that conversion was so powerful. I, I was utterly fearless. I didn't care who it was. I would just tell them like, Jesus is real. Like, you know, and I would share the gospel with anyone and everyone who would listen. And, um. And so for, it's weird because for a long time I thought, oh, I'm definitely going to get fired. Like I'm going to, right. I'm not, I'm going to get canceled or whatever. Canceled wasn't a thing then, but canceled wasn't a thing then. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to lose my career because I'm talking too much about Jesus and Christianity. Like I, I can't keep doing this, but I didn't, I didn't care. Like I just was like, I don't care. And, um, what's weird is like, instead of, I actually got more jobs it was weird. God was like, you know, don't worry, I'm going to provide for you. Um, and then, uh, and then God called me to seminary in 2014, uh, which was really intense. So I went, I I got my master's at Talbot school of theology at Biola. And that was a whole, another story. Um, but, and then, um, it wasn't until my book came out, A Change of Affection, in 2019. That's when kind of it, the that's when the record stopped. It was like, um, and my my agent dropped me. <clears throat> and I mean, I, I don't know if they dropped me because of the book, but it was it was suspiciously <laughs> <Good> timed. <laughs> the timing was very very suspicious. <laughs> So it's, so in other words, it's one thing to, to talk about your faith and on the set and talk to people, but it's another thing to have a book out in the world, like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when in in print, in print Mm -hmm. that it's, it's a different thing. And my, my production design agency is the biggest in the world and they're in in New York, London, uh, Paris and LA. And so It's just, it would just be really weird for them to have someone on their roster, one of their clients Mm. have a book like this out in the world. Mm -hmm. So, and I got, I mean, I, I I was expecting that and I knew God was leading me into other things. And so, Mm. uh, into more full-time ministry stuff and speaking. And so it wasn't a shock to me. Um, but yeah, I did, I did basically get canceled in Hollywood because of my book. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: but have decided to. I mean, you're still living right in the in the middle of it, right in the middle of the city. Yeah, obviously, you still go to church in the city, and you still have friends, I'm sure, right? But what's that been like since?
2: Uh, it's been good. I mean, um, I've you know I've God has done so much stuff. Like, so the book came out, and then I you know I I speak a lot. I speak at churches and conferences around the country. Um, and I have a YouTube show called the Becca cook show. And, and so that I do that weekly and that takes a lot of time and effort and energy. And so that's kind of like, that's sort of, and what else? There's something else. I'm kind of writing a second book now, but, um, what else do I do? What else (laughs) do I do? And so that, so basically I'm in kind of full-time ministry now and, um, Mm -hmm. and, my, the whole, the whole point of my show is, is to, because it's, I believe the lies of the culture for so long in my life. And once God saved me, I knew the truth. I now know the truth. I'm so my show is all about exposing the lies of the culture and bringing the biblical truth to bear on those lies. And so, mm-hmm. um, so my life, I mean, I lost a lot of friends Especially, I uh, most of my friend, a lot of old friends of mine were still there for me, kind of. But once the book came out, it was like, okay, we're done. Like that, it was really like this weird de- defining moment. It was kind of the red line mm-hmm. in the sand. It's like,
0: mm-hmm.
2: okay, Beckett, it was kind of fun for you to talk about this for a while, but like now that right. you've written a book about it, like we're out. Yeah. Yeah. So I lost a ton of friends, but I gained. Um, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. But I gain tons of uh, obviously friends in my church, and
1: mm-hmm.
2: now I have this—I have amazing friends, you know, who are Christians, and um, and I sure. still have, you know, I still have some of my old friends, and we're in contact. And but it's difficult, it's difficult, and it's hard because mm-hmm. when you're not on the same page, um, it's difficult to have. Because the conversation can only be horizontal. It can never be vertical. So mm-hmm. it's this very kind of limiting experience when I go, when I have like, for example, if I go to dinner with some of my old friends, it's like, we can't really talk about anything real. It's all just right. like, yeah, kind of chit chat. Yep. And yep. Um, we can't talk about ultimate things. And, um, and they all, everyone knows, you know, they all know I'm a Christian. They all know my my thing and my story and um and some of them actually t- two or three three of my old friends have actually come to Christ
1: wow i was going to ask you that yeah. guys
2: have come to Christ which is was shocking to me i was stunned when i found out that these two guys came to Christ one in new york and one here um but uh so it's been it's been a crazy ride i mean i still am just blown away that number one, that God saved me. But number two, God saved me the very first time I went to church. Like, that's yeah. cre- that's crazy. And I didn't realize yeah. it. I thought and, that,
1: and not always the case. I
2: know. I thought that everyone had the same experience, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> but I found out later that they not everyone did. And Michael's like still kind of. I'm still waiting trying to be that moment out. Yeah, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: and so I, uh, <laughs> I am so thankful that God. Like I love that he just knew that I needed that the first time. Because like if right. if nothing had happened that first time, I probably wouldn't have gone back. I mean, obviously God sovereign, mm-hmm. and He knew before the foundations of the earth. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't have gone back to church. Spoken like a good reformed. Huh? Yeah, spoken like a good. Reformed. Like yeah, a reformed. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um. <laughs> so yeah, I'm so thankful that God not only save me, but save me the first time. And number three, save me in such a, in crazy powerful way. That was so, it's just like completely undeniable. And Mm -hmm. I, and I, you know, I know Christians, I've heard, I know Christians struggle sometimes with doubt. I've never had a moment of doubt ever about, because again, like I said, it was like, I was caught up in the third heaven and mm-hmm. you experienced God. It was so clear. It was just so crystal clear mm-hmm. to me and I mm-hmm. so there's no that's also why I'm so um kind of bold about my faith because it just there's zero doubt in my mind. Like what mm-hmm. who who God is and that he exists and I know exactly what I'm doing here. I know exactly what's going to happen to me when I die. I know mm-hmm. like I know exactly what's happening and it's crazy
1: like to have, have that have had subsequent experiences like that or cuz that could be on one end really encouraging but on another end for some believers who maybe have not had that experience could be kind of discouraging um and i don't I don't say that as a critique at all i'm just asking have you ever had subsequent experiences of that or are you that that one experience is just so impressed upon you oh no i've had subsequent
2: is... experiences many um so okay. i'll i'll give you a couple examples so i was at my church and this was, I don't know when this was, let's say seven years ago, I was at my church and I, after the sermon, I went to the front of the church and I knew that one of the elders was in the service, this guy named Nick. Mm -hmm. And because I walked, I saw, I mean, there's a thousand people in the auditorium. So, but I saw Nick. Mm -hmm. And so I, I kind of knew he was there. I mean, I didn't kind of, I knew he was there. And, after the service, after the sermon, I went to the front. I would usually go to the front of the auditorium, and that people can you can like kneel, like on the you can kneel and basically just like pray. There's like this mm-hmm. area where you can just pray, and um, so I went down there. Us Pentecostals call that an altar. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, we have <laughs> yeah. these carpets. We have these carpets <laughs> at the front, like where you can just go and kind of work, pray and
0: whatever. Mm-hmm. So. Normally, yeah. I would go on the side of you the- go down and pray quietly in our church. They come down and we push them over. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really wild. We I'm do kidding. not, I'm kidding, we, we don't push anybody, we don't. Over. We, don't, we don't push anybody over. We just whisper to them, Please fall down, Please fall, <laughs> down.
2: fall down <laughs> quick. It. Um, yeah. and so I uh, so I was praying. Normally, I would go to the side of the church, the, the auditorium, because there's always the prayer, there's people on the prayer ministry that can pray for you, for anything you, so every Sunday I would get prayer every single Sunday. Like, I'm like, it's free prayer. Why, why, I don't understand why there's not lines of people getting prayed for. Right. Yes. So I would get prayed for every Sunday. But this particular Sunday I was, I'm not, I wasn't feeling great. I just finished a job. I was like kind of, I was sleep deprived. So I was praying at the front and I literally, this is what I said. I had never done this before. I was like, God, will you send Nick Tortorici over here to pray for me right now? That's all I said. Five minutes later, I feel a hand on my shoulder and I look up yeah. and it's Nick Tortorici. And he's, and I'm like, what you talking about, Willis? I was like, what? And Nick, I just prayed for God to send you over here. And he's like, yeah, the Lord told me to come pray for you. I'm like, What? Yeah. like that's crazy he's like yeah he told me to come pray for you and um and so that happened um another thing happened there's so many more but i'll just give you one more example um and it was with nick again so before i was a christian i i had struggled with mild depression my my since high school and it was always this kind of morning depression and it was pretty it was pretty i know anno- it was really annoying because it was uh it was it was intense in the morning, and so before, like ten years before I became a Christian, I finally got on an antidepressant, and I and it was amazing. It like kicked out the depression completely. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but I but after I got saved, I was like, I don't think I need this anymore. So I stopped taking it. I went to my psychiatrist, who was gay and Wood guy, and I he's like. I'd like, I want to get off the Wellbutrin. Uh, and he's like, oh, that's wonderful news. May I ask why? I was like, well, I met Jesus and, and now blah, blah, blah. He's like, hmm. He's like, why don't we keep you on for six more months? And um, I'm like, no, no, no. I'm gonna no. Up that <laughs> You're going to go ahead and up that dosage, right? I was like, no, I'm getting off now. And so I, I got off of the Wellbutrin because you don't have to wean off of it. You can just stop. Uh, mm-hmm. we we'll ask your doctor. Don't, no, no, don't, don't, listen to me. Anyway, <laughs> you're not giving medical no, advice right no, now. No. No. This is not the Joe Rogan podcast. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Where's Dr. Malone? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, um, so I got off the Wellbutrin and then a couple months later, that depression came back and I was like, ah, oh, dang, I thought this was gone. Like it's back I could easily get back on the medication, but I kind of don't want to. So once again, at church, this is where everything happens. That's why the body of Christ is so important. That's, Come that's on. where all the stuff happen. All the good stuff happens. Go mm-hmm. to church. Go to mm-hmm. church. You yeah. cannot stay at <laughs> yes. home and watch church. Like you got your... You Go got to, to C3LA. Do not forsake yeah. the gathering together, the assembly. <laughs> yeah. Hebrews. Um. And so... Uh. Why is it? So I go to Nick. Nick is on the side of the church praying for people. uh, After the sermon, I go up to him and I tell him the story and he's like, okay, let me pray for you. It was total right out of James chapter five, go to Mm -hmm. one of the elders, have them lay hands on you, anoint you with oil, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Exactly what he did. He laid hands on me. He prayed for me about this depression thing. And then he anointed me with oil. And when he did that, I'm not kidding you. I felt this tingling sensation rise up out of my body through my head and just like immediately burst into tears. And it was like gone. The depression was just like, boom, gone permanently. And I, and I, and Nick, after he finished praying, I was like, Nick, I think I just got healed of depra- wow. and he was like I I yeah, he's like I know I could feel the holy spirit moving in you and I'm like what <laughs> <laughs> Nick,
1: so, Nick sounds very unimpressed about me. Yeah. I know, right? He is. He's he is. Yeah. He's, he's
0: I seen want it Nick all. Come, Nick, can Nick come pray for me? I know. I, I, I know. He's been on my show. This
1: sounds awfully Pentecostal. Yeah. This Zachary. does sound Pentecostal. Quite Pentecostal. Uh, no, it's <laughs> just, we're like, joking it's because Holy Spirit, you know, it's the Holy Spirit. Yes, moving. exactly. It's gifts of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. We're, we're, we're pseudo joking. We're, we're, no, I we're know. So, anyway, so I've had many, many
2: more experiences like that. So, my faith is constantly being just re uh ignite not reignited but just I, I'm constantly being encouraged by God I mean mm-hmm. there's so many times just even a few weeks ago I got prayed for at church by uh someone on the prayer team and it was just one of those moments where I I felt like God was like you need to go get prayer and I was like I don't want to do this today God <laughs> he's like just go get prayed <laughs> for and I did and I was like okay so I went up to this person And she prayed for me, and while she was praying for me, I just felt the Holy Spirit just like, like my heart just like melted, and I was like, oh yeah, (laughs) I needed, I needed to do this. So I feel God's presence a lot, and I feel very connected to Him. Uh,
1: And so, yeah, I.
2: Well, I forgot what what the question was,
1: but well, I I think think it's just like for anybody who. No, it's great. For anybody who maybe hasn't had any of those experiences, um, I think, number one, sometimes we limit God, and I don't mean that in you know a sense that we undermine his sovereignty, but maybe we limit uh, the experiences that are available to us by just not even believing that God wants us to experience him, mm. simply in disobeying the prompt that we feel to go up and receive prayer, yeah. or uh, disobeying the prompt to just be in church that day so that someone like Nick can come and lay hands on us and anoint us mm-hmm. with oil. Um, and so I would just encourage people just pr- practice what the scriptures teach in terms of just spiritual disciplines. And my experience is that you will experience God. Yeah. Yeah. I, I believe that too.
2: I think the more you practice the spiritual disciplines, the more you do sense his presence, the more you, you feel because it's a relationship, you know, it's like, the it's like mm-hmm. having, you know, I don't need to give you this illustration, but it's like a w- husband and wife. It's like the more time you spend with your wife, the closer you're going to feel with her. But if you Mm -hmm. don't spend any time with her, you're not going to, you're not going to really
1: feel uh, that much. So it's, Mm -hmm. that's, that's it. I want to shift gears a little bit. If you've got just a a touch more time, Um, uh, if you need to go hang out with Parasilton or something (laughs) like that, we totally understand. (laughs) That's hot. Uh, Just kidding. uh, I want to shift gears a little bit because you mentioned earlier um, combating the lies of the culture. Uh, I saw on your podcast recently that you did, that you read and did um, some breakdown of uh, Carl Truman's book, The Rising and Triumph of the Modern He's Star, coming on my show soon, soon. Yeah. Oh, could you send him by way? Could you tell him that yeah. we don't have him on yeah, the show? Yeah, we're emailing him about every you know eight days at this point. Michael and I love that book. He's yes. So, I know he, that book um, is amazing. Yeah. So, but I wanted to ask you about when it comes to, combating the lies of the culture. Can you expound upon that a little bit? What are some of those lies? Um, The reason I bring up Carl Truman's book, because I just assume that you have those kinds of things in mind. But can you just talk to us a little bit about that? This can be a kind of a a tough subject for Christians to engage in because they just don't know how to do it. Um, Or maybe they're just afraid of being really offensive, you know, should they try to engage in some of the modern day conversation about sex ethic. I mean, obviously one of the biggest lies of the culture is kind of rooted in the sexual
2: revolution. Uh, and so it's like, kind of sex is uh, sex is no big deal. It's just a transaction. It doesn't really affect anything. And, um, but it's like that's such a like, because, um, I just actually had Natasha crane on, we talked about, she just wrote a book about this, but, um, yeah there's so, the lie this the, particularly this the sexual lies, even about homosexuality that I mean that's one of the biggest lies. That's Satan's like huge masterpiece. and he's got the entire culture duped and he's got people in the church fooled. and he by the way, mm-hmm. Satan is thrilled. I mean, he's like laughing all the way to the bank. He's thrilled that he's got churches who are gay or becoming gay affirming or not really knowing mm-hmm. and kind of like, well, we don't really know. It's like, yeah, Mm -hmm. no, it's actually pretty, it's very clear. I have two episodes on Mm -hmm. the exegetical thing in the Bible, but about this issue, but Mm -hmm. um, that, that lie in particular is very destructive because I, first of all, I lived that life for 20 years and I know how dark it is. Mm -hmm. And I know that, and and by the way, I mean, Paul talks about this in Romans one, he starts off the chapter talking about suppressing the truth. And by the end of the chapter, what what example does he give of suppression of the truth? Homosexual behavior. Yeah, the, and why does he do yeah. that? Because it's obvious anatomically, physiolog- physiologically, and psychologically that men and a man and a woman are supposed to go together. So it takes a lot of suppression to not believe that. Mm. And um, it's kind of the same thing with abortion, like it if paul were alive today i think he would use abortion as the illustration of suppressing suppressing mm-hmm. the truth because we all know even when i was you know pro i was super pro choice back in the day and all my friends were obviously pro choice and and i but but it's like i it was like i knew deep down that it was a baby right.
1: you're practicing like so much cognitive dissonance yes it's
2: such cognitive dis- dissonance that it's like you have to actively suppress the truth. And in fact, when I was living as a gay man, I knew deep. I I mean, I I would never have really said this out loud, but I think I knew deep deep down that there was something off about it, and I couldn't. I didn't really know how to explain it or articulate it, but but yeah, that, the 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 lies. So. Just like every TV show, every movie, every everything is all about pushing this kind of like sexual be who you are, be you know, be gay, like celebrate your like gay pride month and and it's like those those lies are so destructive, not only temporally but eternally destructive. and um mm-hmm. and so that's why I try because, you know, God. I always say the Satan, you know, twisted God's word in the garden. He said, did God really say that you can't do this? Mm-hmm. And he's doing the same thing with this lie with with homosexual behavior. He's like mm-hmm. he's like even to Christians. He's like, "Well, did God really say is it really clear because, you know, mm-hmm. that, that was just Paul talking in his day blah 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 blah. All the lies, all the lies. Mm-hmm. The revisionist lies, mm-hmm. And so that's what um on the show. I it's not just sexuality, but it's other things on my show that I try to address in the culture. Um, all just secular lies, secular humanism, um, just all the kind of lies that come out of that worldview. And and I try to kind of shine the light on it literally with the with the word of God and say, No, no, no. These these are the lies that I used to believe, and now mm-hmm. I understand that they art their lies and, and they're, this is not the truth. And so that's, I mean, I, I'm trying to think of more examples, but that's kind of,
1: um, I Jim remember that idea. you talked a bit about, um, you connected back when you were talking about Carl Truman's book about, um, the link to Freud, the link to Marx, the link to Darwin. Rousseau. Yeah, yeah. So John jacques
2: Rousseau basically is, Next to Adam and Eve, he is the most. His philosophy, I think, is the most destructive thing that's ever happened to humans since Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. since what they did. Mm-hmm. Because Rousseau, mm-hmm. as you know, Rousseau the in the eighteenth century, he his philosophy was man is born good but is corrupted by society. So society. Uh, mm-hmm. So he's famous. At least for he's famous for saying man is born. uh Man is born free. free, but everywhere in chains, meaning the noble savage, the man in nature in capital and nature mm-hmm. is good by nature. But what corrupts him is entering into society and having to um, lose his authenticity and become uh, and, and, and live by the mores of that society. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's really so if you can see. And he inspired Marx. He inspired inspired. Marx. He inspired, and And he he was a progenitor of the French Revolution, which was absolute chaos and mayhem because Mm -hmm. of his philosophy. Mm -hmm. And the Jacobins and Robespierre, they all, like, ended up killing themselves or dying by guillotine, Mm -hmm. killing each other. And um, in the reign of terror and all that. And then, yeah, he Mm -hmm. led, and that philosophy led to Marx, and that led to all kinds Mm -hmm. of... Communism, destructive uh, isms in the 20th century that killed m- hundreds of millions, hundreds millions. and something millions mm-hmm. of people. Mm-hmm. And so Rousseau, the the, the but, problem with yeah. Rousseau is the Rousseau is the opposite of the Bible because the the Bible tells us that we're born in sin, we're born with this original sin, and right. Uh, and when when someone come when someone comes along like Rousseau and says, "No, you're actually born good." but it's, you're corrupted Mm -hmm. by society, then that flips everything. Like it just flips Mm -hmm. every single aspect of culture. And we're seeing that today where there's no, everyone's a victim. There's no one can be blamed for what they do because they're just Mm -hmm. corrupted by society. And so it's, it's, it's our job as society or the government's job to correct that problem as opposed to that person (laughs) taking (laughs) responsibility for his own Responsibility, yeah. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's how destructive, and we see it all around us now. It's every theory, critical race theory, all these things that are, are, come from Rousseau.
1: Keep unpacking that a little bit because I think you're, you're definitely engaging with people right now who are listening. But I think they have more questions as to how that unravels. So like an example would be heteronormative uh, belief. In pervading culture, if you were to play out Rousseau, he would see that as a as an oppressive social structure upon the individual that they need to that is a chain that they're wearing that they need to break free from. Yeah, is that yeah, right? because
2: uh, because you're what you're doing is you're taking away that person's authenticity, who they mm-hmm. you're you're mm-hmm. you're imposing your kind of moral grid on them, your moral <laughs> code or mores on that person. And that's what's really damaging is is imposing that on them. Uh because they are no longer able to live their authentic. That's why this whole idea of that the catchword of the day is authenticity. And there's a reason why yeah. that's the case. And it all again it goes back to Rousseau. And mm-hmm uh because every there in in uh Carl Truman talks about this and um who else does but anyway it's about this kind of radical uh individual uh, individualism, individualism. Yeah, right. and yeah, so we live yeah. in this world where now, Charles about, Taylor it, we filter reality we filter the truth through our feelings rather than through any yeah. objective outside. Mm-hmm uh mm-hmm. per person or agent. And so mm-hmm. when we do that, when we when we live in we live in a postmodern world, there's no everything's subjective, even language is subjective. So there's no right or wrong, there's no tr- uh, truth. Everyone has their own his own version of truth. And so no one we can there's no consensus. And so when when someone mm-hmm. says, "Oh, you're harming me or that your speech is harming me. It's like, well, first of all, you have to define what harm is. Harm, um, mm-hmm. because when I say, for example, let's let's be concrete about this. When I say that homosexual behavior is destructive, again, not only temporally but eternally, many many people in society in our culture would say I'm har- I'm harming them by saying those words. What I'm actually doing is loving them because, and that's, by the way, that's my only motivation to say that is love. I don't, mm-hmm. all I care about are people's eternal destinies. I don't care. Uh, and in fact, in Leviticus 19, look what it says about, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17, it says, this, this kind of gets to the heart of what I'm saying right now. It says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. In other words, mm. telling the truth is loving your neighbor. Obviously doing it in love is, is very important, but telling the truth is
1: loving your neighbor. And, and Paul brings that into the New Testament. I think of, uh, First Corinthians 5 where he talks about dealing with sexual immorality in the church and how he's not shy to confront it uh for for the same purpose that Leviticus 19 points out lest you incur sin because uh sin has an effect on us when we tolerate it um oftentimes we end up yeah he wanted
2: to, to hand the guy he to ourselves. The guy over he told him to hand the guy over to Satan who was sleeping with his stepmother. <laughs>
1: And it's, and, right. but, but why, which was, yeah, Paul does that because he well, wants say, to And to be him. clear, that was his, he's got to say, his goal is restoration. Yeah. And, and the reason I bring that example up is because, you know, immediately when you say Leviticus, people are going to go, oh, well, that's the law. So it has no Im- impact. But I always want to just help people see the proper relationship between law and gospel. And Paul and, you know, the other apostles, Jesus himself, call upon the law all the time to mm-hmm. help us understand how to live.
2: Yeah. Uh,
1: so I forgot where I was going with that or
2: your motivation. Uh, yeah. My motivation is, is, is truly, truthful. it really is love. Like I, because once you've met the King of the universe and once you're in a relationship with him, all you want is to tell other people, it's like, you know, it's like, I mean, there are verses about this in the Bible, but, it, but there, it's like seeing the like the most amazing movie ever and just like oh, my, telling your friends you guys have to see this movie it's amazing and that's mm-hmm. I mean it's infinitely more so in this case with God with Christ but mm-hmm. um that's truly what motivates me that's what gets me out of bed every day and that's why I do my show that's why I, I go speak to people all the time is because I I just want to make it just, it's like this yearning in me to just like, guys, please understand the truth. This is so important. Like, this has eternal consequences. Like, this, all these issues, like, it, these have eternal consequences. And the gospel is the answer to all of this. And that's why I do the, the things I do. And I spend, you know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like Paul was single. And all he cared—he was beaten and shipwrecked and thrown in prison. I'm not saying I'm Paul, but he was beaten, shipwrecked, thrown in prison, and uh, all he cared about was getting the gospel out or around the Mediterranean. Like that's all he cared about, and because he knew he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he was like, "Okay, like this is what I'm going to do," and that's all I care about. I care about people, people's salvation and their eternal life and their eternal destiny and uh and that's yeah that's why i I talk
1: about these things Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's important to always understand and, and just help people draw connections to the fact that the social imagination is informed by the thinkers of our past and oftentimes what we might consider you know more liberal or progressive thinking is rooted in centuries-old ideas. Yeah, and so we're 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 not we're not as free as we think we are. You know, when we proclaim how liberated we are sexually or or whatever else, and I think it's just important that people recognize that. Yeah, I was so in that bondage. they can just have an honest conversation with themselves.
2: Yeah, I thought I was sexually liberated for twenty years, but I little did I know I was I was in bondage for all those years. I wasn't truly. You're in
0: bondage to Risto. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep,
0: that's really good.
1: Man, anything else you can think of? Question-wise, uh, is there anything that you think Christians are are too focused on, and then um, something you think Christians aren't focused on enough? Um, I think I think
2: Christian leaders and pastors are not focused enough on sexuality. Because, especially homosexuality, because it's such a, ta- it's so taboo. I mean, it's so uh, controversial. And, and what happens is when you don't talk about this from the pulpit, when you don't talk about homosexual behavior from the pulpit as a sin, um, that, and you don't do it for years, that's a, that's the perfect opportunity for Satan to creep into the church, sow doubt, among the sheep and, and then suddenly you wake up one day, 10 years later and half of your church thinks that is, thinks that being, you know, living a homosexual life is not only good, but something to be celebrated. And, you know, even it's it's become a sacrament now. So that's, that's something Mm -hmm. I, and I know, I know it's not easy for pastors to talk about this but cuz they're you know obviously they're going to get a lot of pushback but uh it's so crucial to talk about it and not and not just like okay we're going to do a conference and we're going to talk about this one day every 10 years it's like no just talk about it as you would in make anything it part else a regular a conversation make it normative just like mention oh yeah, yeah by the way like sexual sin or give an in ex- an illustration of like oh this was yeah. a sin there blah blah, blah. like mm-hmm. so that's something I don't think is talked about enough because the culture has taken over. Like the culture is mm-hmm. the culture is Satan is winning this battle. He's winning. He's got so many people blinded, and uh he's not gonna win the war, but he's winning this battle. And um so I think it's it's very important to make it very crystal clear to to people that in the church that, guys, like, and it's not because it's not because this this sin is I talk about this in my book. this sin is the same, but different. It's the same as other sexual sins, but it's very different because there's gay pride parades, there's not adultery pride parades, or there's not greed right. pride parades. So it's become so wrapped up in identity. It's very difficult right. to entangle. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the only person who can entangle it in a person.
1: Which again, probably comes back to the fact that there's a sense of liberation, right? That there's an oppression that's been upon this quote, class of people. Yeah, And so it needs its own parade. Whereas no one's going around saying that adulterers are oppressed. Yeah,
2: exactly. So, right. it's, uh, so I think that's one thing that's not talked about enough, um, even though I talk about it all the time. It's not about these rules, like I, I don't. It's not rule. I find so much joy in obedience. I mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. finally because, as I said, when I lived in this postmodern world with no right or wrong, no up or down, I was in a constant state of anxiety. But now that I know the truth, now that I know what God's design is for human sexuality, human flourishing, I find so much joy. In obedience, I, I find joy in having a father, a heavenly father who sets boundaries for me as a, a little kid needs boundaries. And a, a little boy feels safe when his parents give him boundaries. He feels safe and protected. Mm-hmm. And I, that's how I feel now. I feel so protected. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Before when I was living as a gay man, I, I was who, there was all kinds of crazy things going on. I could have been like so many things could have <laughs> happened. But I, now I feel so safe, so protected, and I love being obedient to Christ. I love it. I don't find it. I don't find it uh, a burden at all. In fact, I find mm-hmm. it the opposite. I find it a joy.
1: Amen. Mm-hmm. Becca it,
2: Cook.
0: Yeah. Thanks. So Thank much you so much. Where can people find you online? Obviously, your YouTube channel. Yeah. Instagram. The Becca Cook
2: Show on YouTube, and it's also on all the. Podcast platforms and then uh, BeccaCook.com is, they can find me there. Cool.
0: Wonderful. Amazing. Becca, thanks so much for being with us today, man. Thank you guys it. for having me.
2: We have to hang out at Absolutely. Intelligentsia
0: now.